Good morning, everybody, or good afternoon. If you're on the East Coast, welcome to Sidebar with John Duran. It is March the 1st, 2019. It's a little early for the Ides of March. The Ides of March being March the 15th, but that's in two weeks. But we're going to have a little a little doomsday discussion today about uh, the constitutional crisis that seems to be on the horizon with Donald Trump and the Trump administration. Let me tell you about today's lineup. So, first segment, uh, Steve Meister political and legal guru here on the West Coast, really sharp lawyer, really sharp about politics, uh, seems to know a lot about and has his finger on the pulse of everything going on in Washington, D.C., from the Michael Cohen testimony to the uh, to the Mueller report coming out to uh, the congressional battle going on between the White House and the Congress. And um, I actually ran into my member of Congress, Adam Schiff, over uh, the past couple of weeks and invited him to come on Sidebar with John Durant, and he said he'd love to. So I'm going to figure out a Friday here to get him in studio because normally he's in the district uh, on Fridays, and it'd be great to have Adam because he's the chairman of the House Intelligence Committee now, and I'm sure he'd he'd be a great guest for us to listen to. So I, I'm going to get Adam to come by and join us here on Channel Q very, very soon. Uh, the second segment is the Pop Luck Club. Now, a few weeks ago, I had a show that was all women. The entire day were women guests all day. So I guess this is the flip side of the coin because coincidentally, today it's all men. But I don't want any of you listeners to think that uh, we have a bias one way or the other. I try to balance between women and men and trans, uh, you know, to every extent that I can. But today it's going to be the guys. And um, and uh, the uh, second segment, the Pop Luck Club, John Ireland and Sam, and I'm blanking on Sam's name right now, it'll come to me in a second, but they're coming uh, about uh, the recent uh, articles and evidence that seems to be out there about gay dads and uh, how good they are for their children. And uh, John Ireland and his husband have four kids, and Sam is now going through the process of uh, getting ready to adopt. So he'll talk about the process and what he is going through. So look forward to uh, listening to them. And then the third and the final segment, uh, Studio One. The very first gay bar I walked into in the 1970s, legendary, iconic gay disco uh, was around for many, many years. Well, there is going to be a going away party for Studio One on March the 30th as the the, uh, club finally closes its doors for the final time. And uh, we know that that building is going to be deconstructed, moved, and reconstructed because it is uh, got some historic value to it. But clearly, the heydays of Studio One and Donna Summers and Sylvester and Disco, uh, they're all nostalgia now. But I've got uh, Gary Steinberg and Lloyd Coleman, who ran Carlos and Charlie's up on the Sunset Strip for many years during the 80s, but were very involved with Studio One uh, during its heyday to reminisce about those days uh, of Studio One and about the upcoming going away. Uh, And they're bringing a documentarian with them who's, of course, documenting the history of Studio One, which was the West Coast version of Studio 54 in New York City. And uh, it just seems like... uh, what, I, what can I say? The, the kids don't disco anymore. They just don't disco dance like we're used to back in the 70s and 80s. So we'll be, those will be our segments for the day. But I wanted to point out, it's kind of a pre-Ides of March uh, uh, show uh, today. Ides of March is March of 15th. A recent 
article in the Washington Post uh, written by Greg Jaffe and Jenna Johnson. Uh, and the title of the article is, In America, Talk Turns to Something Unspoken for 150 Years, Civil War. Yeah, you heard me right. Civil War. And, you know, we know that recently Michael Cohen, when he was uh, testifying before Congress earlier this week, his closing statement ended with uh, a prediction that if Donald Trump is still standing come 2020, and if uh, he is not reelected, which God willing, that should be the case, that he not be reelected, that there is a possibility he will not go along with the peaceful transition of power. And to me, that was like, what? How could That's just absurd. That's what I thought initially when I thought about it. And, I, you know, later that day, that's just ridiculous. That would never happen. Of course, there'd be a peaceful transition of power. But uh, this guy does everything that you don't think could possibly happen seems to happen with Donald Trump and let's face it he's mentally unstable he's he is insane he does not have a grasp of reality he is tuned in to Fox News 24 hours a day and doesn't listen to any opposing viewpoints doesn't read any materials doesn't seem to understand the limitations of the power of the presidency doesn't even understand co-equal branches of government and he's backed by people on the hard right like the NRA and the Tea Party and others who actually I could see uh, would, uh, would, would uh, fight a peaceful transition uh, uh, power if they thought uh, their fearless leader was saying that somehow the election was rigged. I don't know if you remember, but in 2016, Donald Trump was saying that, you know, he would not respect the outcome of the election if he didn't win. And um, the difference is now he's the sitting president with all the powers of the presidency at his disposal, including the military. And what would happen if we had a constitutional crisis occur where the sitting president of the United States, who would be indicted probably in New York the day he left office for felonies and misdemeanors, uh, did not go peaceably and instead decided to hunker down and try to contest the outcome of the Electoral College. Is that foreseeable? Yeah. I don't even want to think about it. I don't want to think about Americans armed with weapons turning against one another to protest an election. But given everything that's going on right now with probably the most corrupt, unstable, um, really... There's no word for it other than perverted uh, democracy that we are existing under right now. I don't know if you know this. The United States went from being categorized, categorized as a pure democracy to a flawed democracy because of the Trump administration. We are, we are not uh, the beacon and herald to the world of how democracy is supposed to look. Now, fortunately, we're getting a little bit of correction with uh, Democrats controlling the House, but... Are we really headed for a constitutional crisis next year? In which case, this year should be very, very vitriolic. Well, more about that as the show unfolds. Uh, I want to thank you for tuning in uh, to Sidebar with John Duran here on Channel Q. Odyssey is 
giving you a chance to win a trip to London to see Taylor Swift at the Eras Tour. It's Tay in the UK. Hey, it's Taylor. Just download the free Odyssey app, log in and listen to a participating station for a minimum of 60 minutes to get your daily entry. And you could win a chance to fly off to London with three friends and see Taylor. I can't wait to see you at the Eras Tour in London. For more, go to odyssey.com slash Taylor. Tay in the UK. It's on the Odyssey app. Thanks to Republic Records. This is a national contest. Steve Meister, our political legal guru of the day. Welcome, Steve. Welcome to the show. Good morning, John. It's great to be with you. Good to have you. Now, gang, I, I've known Steve Meister, I don't even know, 20, 25 20 years, years, something like that. He is a brilliant lawyer here in Los Angeles. He does politics. He's often a talking head on many television shows. I've seen you on everything from CNN to MSNBC and everything in between, right? Thank you. Yeah, yeah. that's true. I see you. And, and you and your wife live here in Los Angeles, and uh, it's great to have you. I, I thought you'd be a great person. I don't discriminate on sexual orientation, and you're one of the... You know, my my producer here is heterosexual, an avowed heterosexual, as wow. are, are you. You're so outnumbered in this I'm room. I'm outnumbered for the first time here in Channel Q. There are more straight people in the room than gay people. Well, <laughs> I've always known that there was something different about me from the time I was a kid, John. So, <laughs> Well, thank you for agreeing to come on. Michael Cohen's testimony. Did you watch it? I did. What did you think? I thought it was uh, very interesting, and I thought he was essentially a credible witness. You and I are both defense attorneys for a living. Right. We know that when we have a witness who the prosecution is going to rely on, um, and it's our job to try, to try to knock that witness down, we go after credibility first. The thing is, you and I both experienced this in trials over the years. If the prosecutor shows up with a witness who has lied in the past, we can take some hits at that witness and we can knock them around all we want. But eventually that argument gets old if, like Cohen, they show up with documentary and other evidence which corroborates and verifies what they're saying. Right. And I think at the end of the day, he's not I, – I agree with what I heard uh, – Chris Christie say on the radio last night, which is that you don't build a case, you can build a case with Cohen, but not all about Cohen. He's not enough, but he's a good start. Yeah, well, that check for $35,000 written from Donald Trump, into it, that's the smoking gun. Yeah, they, there are a couple, bank fraud, um, tax fraud, uh, There's there's and, there's a, and with the questions that I think um, AOC was actually effective in asking, you know, she was basically saying, she was playing the role of investigator saying, who else should we talk to? And they got a list. And now there's a list for intel. There's a list for oversight. There's a list for ways and means. All of these committees to talk to other people and and continue to gather evidence as the basis for a, a, an ongoing investigation. It's all there. Yeah, I know. And we don't even know what Mueller's going to release any day now. What do you think he's going to release? He's been, the investigation's been going on for two years. Yeah, and I don't think it's... I, I continue to think it's not close to ending. I don't think it's going to go on forever. Well, what about the kids? Right, you and I were emailing about this. We we don't have any any uh, indictments on uh, Ivanka or Don Jr. Or and that's true. And I think I think that from from Cohen's testimony, I think the Southern District of New York is probably looking at the kids. I know they're looking at Weiselberg. I don't know, and they're probably. I know the special counsel is probably looking at Don Jr. based on Russia, and they're probably in under the ambit of the Russia investigation. And I'm sure they're looking at Jared too. Yeah. yeah. So I think I. I don't think we've seen the last of it. I know I have heard reports that Mueller has effectively farmed out a lot of investigations to other U.S. attorneys' offices around the country who have very broad mandates. They can investigate anything they think is a federal crime. It doesn't have to be within the strictures of the Mueller mandate and the Russia investigation. But I don't think that the Russia investigation's over either. Yeah, I, you know, I was a kid during Watergate, and I sort of remember bits and pieces of Watergate, and I was not really paying attention. I was more interested in, you know, baseball. I actually played baseball. 
baseball as a kid. But I mean, you I, surf too. I, and I surfed. Do you remember that about me? I had a surfboard too. But this seems to be so much heavier than Watergate or Contragate or any of the other scandals that have inflicted presidencies because it involves our chief adversary, Russia. I know. I know. It scares me. It frightens me. And, uh, and, it, I, I compare. I was just thinking this morning. It's funny you bring up Watergate. I was just thinking about it this morning, where I look back on Watergate almost as the good old days, because it was we we had then a president in Nixon who was a paranoiac and who was incredibly politically gifted and impactful in a lot of things he did, but you know the the, the same qualities that brought him the heights of success brought him crashing down. I mean his yeah. his, his, his his assets became his enemies internally, and. And now, you know, but, but there wasn't a question of his patriotism. There wasn't a question of whether or not he was compromised by a foreign power. Right. And now we got a guy in office who will do anything, say anything, cares only about himself. I don't think he has, I don't think the president cares about anything or anyone else except himself personally yeah. and his own aggrandizement. And it frightens me. Well, you know what you were saying um, in uh, in the in the segment before I came on. You were talking about how he has no limits. All the things that I I almost took for granted: the rule of law, the the guardrails that people would exercise, you know, or that observe, and the and the restraints they would put on themselves in their lives and in their professional conduct. This guy doesn't do anything, and he, incur- he he crashes them all to bits, and he encourages people in the name of preserving himself to do the same. It's horribly dangerous for our country. It is, and I, th- I think you point out, Nixon was brilliant in many ways. China, opening the gate to China, you know, he was a statesman. He was very sharp, you know, and it, it, part of it, too, it led to his downfall. But at the end of the day, I never thought he'd be a threat to the existence of the United States. I That's think right. He's still a patriot. Ronald Reagan, same thing. Disagree with just about everything he stood for, but I always felt he had the best interests of the American people at heart. You know, he was pro-immigrant, didn't see a racist bone in his body. You know, he cared about the shining city on the hill. He talked about our higher hopes and aspirations and optimism. Even though I didn't agree with his policies, at least he gave me something to look towards and respect the office of the presidency. This guy, none of that. None no, of that is present. No, and in the Russia investigation, what's so scary is that there, there is, there was a strong, it wasn't strong, it wasn't is. I'm sorry, a strong basis for investigating the president of the United States in a counterintelligence investigation, yep. based on whether he might be compromised by a foreign power. That's, that is frightening. That's a movie script. That is basically uh, the Manchurian Candidate, a movie script, right? I think it is. In our lives right now. Good thing we're in Hollywood. Yeah, it's good thing we're in Hollywood. And what just happened in Hanoi, in Vietnam, I mean, why show up with Kim Jong-un and do two, 48 hours and then leave empty-handed as if that's a surprise? I wasn't really sure what the point of the trip was, other than to appear to be statesmanlike. That's what I think it was. Yeah, to appear to be. And because they exchange love letters and they're getting along. Oy. And I, Oi is right. Right. Uh, I, in my language, it would be I. I or oi. <laughs> <laughs> Between Jewish and Latino, it's the same expression, <laughs> oi or I. It's like, what is going on here? And, and then to, to somehow think that that Kim Jong-un was not responsible for the death of Otto Warmbier. I mean, so frightening when you take the word of dictators like Putin or Kim Jong-un or Duarte in the Philippines over your own intelligence agencies. It, I, 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 I don't know how to explain it other than that. I, I, well, maybe I'll, I'll venture a guess. My, everybody talks about Trump as, as uh, 
saying he only wants to aggrandize himself, that he wants to win at all costs. He has to win at all costs. My, my thinking is that his fear of losing is a more powerful motivator for him than his desire to win. That's interesting. Because I think, it, I think the man's haunted by the ghost of his dead father. Yeah. Whose approval he never had and right. whose approval he always sought. And I think that, and I don't, I don't, it, it almost makes him sound like a sympathetic figure, but he's not because he's done such destructive and dangerous things. And I think the North Korea summit was a joke. I wouldn't have, I mean, maybe someone could pass the California bar exam, John, never studying for it and never having gone to law school. I know I couldn't have. Yeah, me neither. And I think that the, the, the key to these summits is preparation and there was no preparation. And, and you know, some things... Some things are done a certain way because history have shown history has shown that they work when they're done that way. Upending convention for the sake of so that you don't have to read a, a, a briefing on the way over on the plane. That's that's not the way to do it. And we've seen it. It diminishes the quality. It diminishes our standing in the world. It makes us look like jokes. We're not jokes. It makes us look less serious. We are serious. It makes us look less hardworking. We are a hardworking nation. And it makes us look like uh, it diminishes our leadership and standing in the world because we can't get the chief executive to work with his staff to prepare things to actually achieve a foreign policy success. Yeah. And they never know which way it's going because Trump could change his mind on impulse uh, that's right at any moment at any time but what up the heck with the entire republican party i mean they have completely abandoned almost all their principles anti-communism controlling deficits uh, limited government all of the republican party principles have hatred been, of immigrants was never in a republican principle and it is now never i mean all of their principles they have sacrificed diluted compromise in order to just maintain power i know i don't i, I wonder I, I mean it worked it worked in 2016 to everybody's shock, and I think that they're afraid. I think that Republican members of Congress are afraid of being primaried by Trump now if they don't toe the line. I think that's perhaps part of an explanation about why Lindsey Graham has gone insane. He has. Yeah. He, he does face. He does. He he is up for re-election in 2020, and I think he's worried about getting primaried by Trump if he doesn't toe the line. But I mean, it really is kind of off the charts with that guy. Amazing. We're going to have to take a commercial break. We'll pick that up right where we left it. Thank you all for tuning in to Sidebar with John Duran here on Channel Q. You loving your intro music, Steve Meister? That is awesome. <laughs> I didn't bring my trench coat or my hat or my fast car, but I'll, I'll, I'll have them ready. I love that. We're talking to Steve Meister, political legal guru here in Los Angeles, and we were talking about Mueller Report in Washington, D.C., but I, over the break, we were chatting a little bit about Jesse Smollett. Heartbreaking. A fine human being. Heartbreaking. I mean, he's a good guy. I've met him a few times. Seems like a great guy and wonderful. What the heck? I, I don't know. I, I've never met him, but I'm from, from a distance. I'm not thinking he's a good guy. He hurt, I mean, it's like start, he hurt black people, he hurt gay people. We can go from there. Yeah, I mean, sadly, there are actual hate crime victims who are victimized because of race or religion or sexual orientation who need and demand justice. And by if it's true, okay, I'm trying to give him the benefit of the doubt, but it looks pretty bad. Dude, he wrote a check to I, these two I guys. Know. He wrote a, I mean, that's the thing. If you're going to enter into a conspiracy, don't pay by check yes i know don't use it don't leave fingerprints it's so true and i don't just, point out don't be caught on surveillance camera pointing out to the guys which camera you want them to be seen beating you on is that i didn't, yeah, I did didn't that hear too. that fact oh god i did not hear that factoid that's really bad yeah it is bad and, and i mean the chief of police in chicago was i mean you could tell he was the angst he was feeling as an african-american chief like 
Really? We, we pulled how many officers off of other cases to try to work on this case, which now appears to be farce? Yeah. Do you know the answer? How many? 24. 24 detectives in a city with one of the highest murder rates in the country. And that, and how disheartening for all those victims and their families, right? That's right. To not have... My uncle's murder case didn't get worked because for, for a month because they were chasing down bogus leads for your lies. Yeah. And that's... There's a, there's a lot to be said. I mean, it, 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 there's a lot to be said about this case. Uh, to me, the, the good thing is, the good news for our nation is that it's easier now than at any time in our history to make a report like Jesse Smollett did and be believed. That's a good thing. Unless you're lying. Right. In which case, it becomes so bad and so wrong so quickly and in so many ways. Yeah. You know, when I first heard the facts and I heard there was a rope and then I heard there were liquids tossed on them, I thought I was, something went off in yeah. my ticker. Like, this is too... Too perfect? Perfect. Uh, maybe that's the word. Like, it's a television script. Like, it's something yeah. I would read on a, a script in Hollywood. Yeah, like all the boxes were checked. Yeah. And I thought, mm, kind of put my, you know, criminal defense uh, wires went up. They were like, yeah. mm, what's going on here? You know. Yeah, I did too. And I guess because I've reviewed literally hundreds and hundreds of not thousands of police reports and after a while they all pretty much you know some look the same but every now and then there's a factoid that comes out that either makes me go hmm that's interesting or hmm that's not believable oh, I, I agree with you my what what got my attention at the beginning was a red flag to me was that he and his manager were refusing to share their phones with police right after the attack okay that's about that was if you're an actual crime victim you you're willing to cooperate usually. yeah to the greatest I, extent possible. And I had heard people saying, you know, I had heard and I'd read accounts of people saying online where, you know, they're saying, well, I don't want to give my, I wouldn't want to give my phone to the police because I don't want to compromise my privacy. And all I could think was, dude, if you just got carjacked, you're not going to care what pictures they find right. on your phone. You're going to give them your phone so they can see this guy's face. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Oh, just harp. And you know what? I'm try trying to figure it out because it's almost as if in today's society, if you're the victim, if you're sitting in the victim's chair... You get a certain degree, I don't want to say, this is going to sound awkward and clumsy the way I'm putting it, but there's a certain uh, degree of attention and empathy and sympathy that's extended your way that ends up putting you in a place uh, where people will, I don't want to say revere you for being a crime victim, but all that attention and sympathy goes towards you. And, and it's sad that to actually construct a make-believe story to get that sort of sympathy to try to then up salary or yeah. opportunities in Hollywood or some form of publicity. I agree. That's why I think what he did was so horrible. He took advantage of everybody who he assumed would believe him, and that's millions of people. Yeah, and I millions mean, of people did. I mean, even in West Hollywood, we had a rally when he, he came to the Troubadour and sang that later that week on Santa Monica Boulevard, and there was a rally in support of him, and you know, people turned out in the rain to rally to on his behalf and his defense, and then days later, it all fell apart. Everybody got screwed. Yeah, and people walk away just thinking, oh, Wow. Yeah, oh. I got burned. Yeah, I got, I got burned. You know, it's even even the Reverend Al Sharpton, who learned from getting burned, because he, he got behind victims who turned out to be fake in the past. I heard him say something when, before, it, before the investigation turned toward Jesse Smollett as a suspect, Al Sharpton, of all people, said, if it's true, it's a horrible thing. <laughs> I thought, okay, wow, he that's said a that. man who's learned from he, he, learned, he learned from getting his, burned, and it's like, 
Well, yeah, and, and you and I were defense lawyers, so when people come in and tell me their story, I listen, I right. take notes, you know, and then if they ask me for my opinion, I'll say, I'll let you know once I read the police report. Let's hear the other side of what other victims or what other witnesses have to say, and then we'll figure out if your story makes sense. Agreed. Yeah, and sometimes I actually have an innocent client. It's like, oh, I have an innocent client. This is the greatest challenge for a defense lawyer ever. You have to take out an insurance policy yeah. on people like that. Yeah, I know. But then every now and then I have clients who will tell me one story, and then when all the physical evidence comes out and videotapes and video cams is yeah. like, yeah, your story's not holding up. Yeah, it's yeah, a, it's a, I, those are conversations we all have to have. That's my come it. to Jesus talk. Like, it is, and it, they have to be handled delicately. <laughs> Very, because you don't want to call your client a liar, but it's just not, if it's not going to pass your lawyer sniff test, how do you think you're going to convince a jury? No. We have yeah. to talk with our colleagues to sort of get it out of our system before we confront our client with it. Let me. Can I ask you a question, John? Sure. You and I, so you and I, you were telling me now, and I just learned it, you and I both had suspicions about Jesse Smollett's credibility from the beginning, right? Before right. things went south for him, right? I myself, I look back now. I was afraid to say something about it. I was afraid to post about it. Yeah, I was reluctant to criticize publicly because right. it, it was going against the tide. And yeah. I'm in the go against the tide business, but I still didn't say anything. I wonder what was your. I didn't say anything either because I didn't want to be accused of being racist or not sympathetic to African American people, or because it was a gay person feeling like I couldn't criticize what I was hearing. Yeah, but you know, people who wear "Make America Great Again" hats don't hang around with ropes in their hands at 1:30 in the morning in downtown the, Chicago. In downtown Chicago and it's like that doesn't make sense to me that that just doesn't all it doesn't all fall together no it so doesn't neatly it doesn't and I walk away from that experience and my own reaction to it thinking okay if I were guilty of groupthink being afraid to speak up about something or being reluctant to think about I can't do that yeah. and I got to encourage everybody in my life and everybody I can impact to speak up about something even at, even if if the risk is that you're going to you know get a couple of hate tweets back because if you think something's wrong you should say something and if you think people are jumping to conclusions and getting on a train they shouldn't get on it's okay to yeah. say so like i i've been the actual victim of a mugging i've been mugged in the valley in, in the san fernando valley at gunpoint you know and all the person really wanted was my wallet and my money and it was a, it was a moment I thought, I'm going to die yeah. on Ventura Boulevard. But there wasn't a great orchestration around you know race or class. Or, and I was walking into a gay bar or my sexual orientation. It was just about the money. The guy's got a wallet. The guy's got a wallet. I need money for whatever reasons. And that's all it was. We are out of time. But I thank you for coming, Steve Meister. I hope you'll come again. I always love sitting around chatting with you. Anytime. Thanks for having me. It's been great. All right. Thank you all for tuning in to Sidebar with John Duran here on Channel Q. I'm not sure what that is, but Jason, thank you for picking that intro music for... Who is it, Jason? I, I, now I'm curious. Who is that? Yeah, it's the Never Let You Go. Uh, give me one second. Let me pull this up really quickly here. <laughs> well, this is our intro. Yeah, the Parent Trap soundtrack. Parent Trap. Yeah. That's what it is. <laughs> I'm like, oh, okay. okay. <laughs> it all makes sense. Thank you, Jason. We have got John Ireland and Sam Gilstrap here with us in studio from the Pop Luck Club. John, what is the potluck club? Well, it all started with a potluck, as you can probably guess. A uh, bunch of gay guys 20 years ago who were gathering in West Hollywood in a park. We brought picnics. You know, basically, we were all getting together. And I actually wasn't a part of the group at that time. It came along a few years later. But the founding fathers of potluck wanted to parent. They wanted to be dads. And uh, it's there were not a lot of role models for us at that time. So really, as we look back those two decades, uh, those are our founding fathers. Um, a lot of their kids are now in high school and college. But it started with one little baby um, who um, 
you know, was the first, and everybody sort of passed him around, and uh, we were impressing each other with our best casseroles, and that's where the <laughs> Pop Luck Club started. But we've grown. We we celebrated our 500th child uh, a couple years ago. We haven't counted for a while, so there are a lot of families involved, over a thousand dads, and it's a support group. So we provide resources and support. You know, that's a bit, I, I'm old enough. <laughs> I hate when I start that way because I'm about to date myself. But I came out in the 70s when the notion of gay men and children in the same paragraph raised the suspicion of pedophilia. I mean, yeah. that was the label that yeah. was just placed on. We could not be trusted around right. children. Well, that's part. We all have our journeys, right? Part right. of that emotional preparation for most of us that become dads is, is really navigating that. We have to negotiate that topic even if it's unspoken it's still part of the historical view of gay men so yeah when you see me walking down the street in my baby bjorn with with an infant or pushing a stroller uh, not only does that um is does that challenge the preconceived notions of society but also other gay men i mean we're just sort of evolving as a community to acknowledge that a lot of us have paternal instincts and yeah we, yeah we, we could do a i get that here. complaint in west hollywood sometimes mayor what are you gonna do about all the strollers on santa monica block on the sidewalk i'm like they're gay dads what do you want me to do <laughs> tell them to go to panorama city i mean what are we gonna do uh, you have four kids right i Sean? do how'd that happen uh, and yeah. sam you're getting ready to become a dad yeah i'm a really good example of what you call a prospective gay dad because at some point for some reason i decided i want to be a gay dad my husband and i decided that together which is kind of important you have a husband it's important for you both to be on board um but yeah that's where i am and and uh, we can talk more about what that entails but i'm kind of going through the process now there are there are uh, various paths to parenthood i mean parents come in all shapes and sizes you know which i think is apropos to a, you know, our discussion here and one of the great advantages of the fact that politics are changing that society is changing is that there's a lot of fluidity. You can kind of be the kind of parent that you want to be. And because we're gay dads and we can't have kids the old fashioned way because they haven't yet come up with a way for us to do that. There are a lot of ways out there that we can do it. There's surrogacy. There is um, what you call direct adoption, right? Where, you know, you go through an adoption agency and you wait for a mom who's willing to give it for a baby. Or you can do what my husband and I are doing and you can adopt from the foster system. There's a, a child out there who unfortunately for one reason or another can't go back to his or her birth family and needs a permanent home, needs a what we call a forever family. And um, our goal is to become a forever family for the right child or children. And that's kind of what we're doing right now. You know, I was a, a, a law clerk to Diane Abbott in the early 80s. She's been a guest on the show a few times. Mm -hmm. And she's a lesbian mom. And I think for lesbians, because uh, at least back in the 70s and 80s, they came out of heterosexual marriages where they had children by natural childbirth and then when the lesbian moms came out they took the kids with them so they the kids by default usually used to go to the mom historically anyway but gay dads it seems like you have extra added hurdles to to go through because you can't conceive children right mm -hmm. you need to have <laughs> not uh, on our own anticipating <laughs> womb uh the, the natural default historically at least has been to the mother rather than the father mm -hmm. you know historically there's maternity leave for mothers but mm -hmm. not always 
paternity leave for right. fathers. So you have a whole lot of different issues to negotiate. Yeah. Also, adoption is a big part of most, uh, if, if you're coupled, if you're partnered, right, adoption is part of that. Even if you're a surrogate, if you, if you use a surrogacy process, uh, one parent is biologically related, the other is not. So there's an adoption that happens. So adoption laws are not unified. Uh, family law, as you know, is a state, state by state. By state right. mm-hmm. So it's a patchwork uh, of of laws, and you really have to research um, who are your allies um, and advocates in your state. California, we're really lucky. People come here uh, for surrogacy because the laws around surrogacy with gay men are um, advantageous over most other states, uh, but also just adoption in general, fostering and adoption. Um, it is illegal to discriminate against somebody for... Um, being, you know, gay people who want to foster and adopt, but that doesn't mean it doesn't happen. And the religious exemption laws that are being passed in states are really putting a freezing effect mm-hmm. on our families in wow. some states. All right, we got to take a commercial break, but we're going to continue this discussion after the commercial break. I want to thank you for tuning in to Sidebar with John Duran here on Channel Q. We're talking to John Ireland and Sam Gilster up from the uh, Pop Luck Club. And uh, so let's just pretend I'm – shout out to Houston. we got people in Houston listening yeah, right now. Yeah, mom and dad and sister. Your mom and dad and sister. Hi, mom and dad and sister. Let's say I'm a gay guy and I have a husband or a partner or two or three of them, and we decide that we want to become dads. Where do we start? Well, there's a, a great national organization called the Family Equality Council, and uh, they're easy to find. You Google them. They can connect you with a group like ours, Pop Luck Club. Uh, we're a part of their family support group network. Um, and it's a great way to find people in your neighborhood, even if it's a nascent group. Maybe you're going to be the leader of that group. You may be in a town that doesn't have a huge organization, but there are definitely other people in your same position. So that's a great place to start. Um, and and link to your local community because you can't do this on your own, really. I mean, there's so much research mm-hmm. that uh, you can get great referrals to adoption agencies, mm-hmm. to um, surrogacy companies, to doctors, to lawyers. I mean, there are aspects that you need to protect yourself legally as well, protect your children. So um, that's a great place to start. And of course, popluckclub.org is our website. That's where in Southern California, you can get some great resources. And we are also happy to help connect you wherever you are to people in your community. And your four kids, John, are they Mm -hmm. biological? Well, they are siblings. Yeah, they're all related. We started in 2004. Uh, My husband and I at Popluck just researching, met a social worker who handed us a card. Little did we know she'd be handing us four children (laughs) over the next decade. And we have caller ID, so we know when the agency would call. And it was like, guess what? Your child has uh, a sibling now. Uh, Head to the hospital. Uh, And it was always, you know, our decision uh, to say yes or no. But we we decided each time yes, because it's important siblings get to be connected. And they're amazing children. Amazing. They're, They're now 14. She came to us at four months old, 11 years old, four and three. Oh my God! That's they are amazing. such cutie pies too. That's, I feel like Rip Van Winkle because you know, like ten years later, I'm doing the same thing again, preschool and going into <laughs> elementary again. <laughs> and Sam, you and your husband, what did you decide? Are you foster parenting or adoption? Yeah, we are um, what we now call in the state of California resource parents. And and ever since 2017, when they changed the rules here in California, it what that means is that you go through all of the process. You know, you you go through CPR classes, parenting classes, and jump through many hoops. And they look at you up and down through a microscope. And 
and you know take eyelash samples and everything. I'm I'm only slightly exaggerating, but what it means is you are now qualified to either take in children in the foster system, like on a temporary basis, while their parents you know work through what they need to do so that their children can return home to them and you know they become a happy family, or if a child unfortunately is not able to do that and needs a permanent home, then you're qualified to adopt from the foster system as well. So we are now in that place, and we are. It's interesting. It's an interesting time for me to be here because we are actually doing both at once right now. We have a couple little guys, age two and three, which I'm going to say right now is way younger than we were aiming for because we're really looking for, you know, school age children. Because I don't want to be in my 60s when they're in high school, and um, you know, and a lot of other reasons. And um, we're working with their, you know, bio mom and the vast network, you know, the village, you know, as John was talking about to kind of help the family work through what they need to so they can go back home as soon as possible. And at the same time, we are in what's called a match. And what that means is the county has a child who needs a forever home and they think that you would be a good forever home. And so now we're going to go through a series of, you know, meetings and, and, a, and a long process and visits and then, you know, really find out if we are a match. And if so, if everything goes well, then we're going to have a uh, forever child and he's going to have a forever family. And so we're super jazzed about that. You know, I got to tell you that this conversation is just hitting an emotional barb for me because I came out in 1978. (laughs) Homosexuality was criminalized Mm. three years prior in California, 1975. And so I came out into Studio One, which is going to be our next topic on the show. And we have gone from disco bunnies and village people to it takes a village (laughs) to raise children. (laughs) And to me, I'm having this complete cultural like meltdown in my head about where we have come from over the last 40 years. It's truly amazing. I I think that we all have these phases in our lives, right? And we have the career building phase. We have the, um, you know, and some of us, we wake up one day and we realize, I'm I'm a dad. I don't have children, but I feel like a dad. Yeah. I think a lot of us also, I certainly went through adolescence um, with some problems, you know, in my own growing up, feeling like that was not the best experience necessarily. I, I thought, I mean, it, I had a good childhood, but I could improve on a few things. So mm-hmm. now... Every day, I get to. And it's actually the most fulfilling choice of my life. I didn't realize at the time how hard it would be and how rewarding it would be. Absolutely. And I mean, along, if I could add to what John's saying, I, one of the things, you realize a lot about yourself, you know, when you're going through parenting and just being a prospective parent, you learn a lot about yourself. And one of the things I've learned about you, myself, I think the most important lesson is that never say never. You never know what you're capable of. You never know where life is going to take you. Six months ago, and I am not kidding, if you'd asked me, hey, you ever thinking of having children? I would have said, oh, hey, no way. Absolutely. I am proudly child free and then something changed I think just at uh, I'm not going to tell you how old I am but let's just say later in life after I went through you know phases of probably being child free now it's like I'm ready to be a parent now all of a sudden maybe the latent paternal instincts just kicked in and fortunately um, you know the first thing we decided to do is like well a little information ever hurt let's look at this so we found raiseachild.org which I want to tell everybody out there about uh, they're based here in Los Angeles and we were fortunate to find them because they were a gateway to Poplar 
Duck, which I'm, I'm thrilled about, to the uh, f- what's called a foster family agency that is working with us. It's part of our bi- village, a major part, uh, called Penny Lane. There are 45 of these foster family agencies in Los Angeles County alone that work with the county to kind of supplement what they do, you know, the Department of Children and Family Services. And they have agencies like this all over the country. So anyone who's in the position like we were, I encourage you to, you know, get on Google and try to find these kinds of agencies and they'll help you out. We have less than a minute. Any upcoming events or anything you guys want to plug or pitch for the well, Pop Luck Club? You know, we go into Pride season and many of us have marched in Pride parades over the years. As dads, you get the best miles and the best waves because we've got our kids in our strollers and, uh, <laughs> and riding their scooters. That's in June here in LA. Um, we Pop Luck is marching. And then a week after is Father's Day. So we are having a Father's Day brunch at the Abbey. Oh. No matter where you live in the world, you should know where the Abbey is. Um, <laughs> yes. We take it over on Father's Day. And it's not far from Studio One. Yes, <laughs> right across the street. Right it's across a the terrific street. opportunity just to come by and, and learn about opportunities. Well, yeah. John, Sam, thank you so much for both coming on the show. I hope you'll come back. Especially Anytime. when thank kids you. get back. closer to junior, senior prom. I want to have you back <laughs> hear what you think about parenting that. That's right. Thanks for having us. All right, us. thanks for tuning in to Channel Q and Sidebar here with John Duran. Guys, we are going from one group of daddies to another group of daddies because we've got Gary Steinberg and Lloyd Coleman and Mark Saltarelli in studio, and we are going to talk about the history, the legacy, the legend of Studio One and the upcoming event to say goodbye to that era and that time. Yeah? Yes. Welcome, guys. Yeah. Welcome. Well, thank you very much. Uh, at 19 years old, 1975, I came out. Wow. Valentine's Day. Did you have a fake ID like I did? I had I, a fake I was no, Jorge Gonzalez for I years. did not go. I was a good kid. <laughs> I did not try to go. But I looked forward to being 21 to be able to go to Studio One. Yeah. Oh, my God. The back lot with Waylon Flowers and the madam on the bar. Joan Rivers. Joan Rivers. Yeah. Peter yeah. Payne. Jane Oliver. Everybody. Those were the glory days, guys. Wow. I mean, Julie I, Budd. <laughs> Rosalind Kind. <laughs> and the list goes on. All the divas. You, and, you yeah. guys had a special role in the history of all this because Scott Forbes, who was the owner of Studio One, kind of brought you guys in. What would you say? Promoters? DJs? How, how, would you, how would he classify? How were you classified? Well, it, it, it's interesting because I, was, I used to uh, make contact with Scott as a businessman, local businessman. I was working for Severin Ashkenazi who owned the Lermitage Hotel Group. Right. And on the day the Olympics opened in 1984, the opening day of the Olympics, we had scheduled five hotels to open, very famous hotels now, one that is now called the London, I believe, but it was the Le Bellage, yes. Le Mondrian, Le Dufy, Le Parc. Now yep. they all have separate owners. but And, the, of course, the prize one up on Burton Way was the Lermitage. Right. But we opened these hotels simultaneously. We did lasers around the city. And Scott was very impressed with all this hoo-ha. And uh, he sought me out and he said, I'd like somebody like you to come work with me on my campaign. He wanted to be the first mayor of West Hollywood. The city was thinking about becoming... And I got to know Scott. Actually, I I like Scott a lot. And we started talking. So I could serve you a lot better by letting my partner and me 
get into your showroom and get into your dance floor right, right. and uh, do some promotions. You know, Studio One was such a legendary period in gay history because we would all just come out. We were decriminalized in 1975, uh-huh. right? And it was the beginning of the sexual revolution, not only for women, but gay men and lesbians and LGBT. And we didn't have an internet and we didn't have social media and we didn't have any way to hook up or meet other than to go to a bar. This was our safe space. It was our cathedral. It was our temple. It was our temple, our sanctuary. And Studio One was the big one. Yeah, it was the safe place to go out and the place to see and be seen. Right. And so, to hang with our friends. Yeah. And create friends and lovers and find your lawyer or find your doctor or find anything. Spend two hours to get ready to go out. <laughs> That's so true. <laughs> we would have pre-Studio One parties. We'd have disco, I'd have yeah. disco naps. Yeah. I would nap from 6 to 8 and get exactly. up at 8 to get ready to be there by 10. It's a whole different way of going out. Yeah. And, uh, you know, today's detention and rightly so, to DUIs and traveling around. Back in the day, it was just a little bit different. Uh, everybody lived in the neighborhood because it right. was a safe place, so you could walk there. Yeah, it was uh, everything was concentrated around Studio One Two. The after hours eateries. Yes, that's Remember so true. The greenery. The greenery. It's coming back. <laughs> I just had a flashback to the greenery. And you could be out all night and safely around that block, around Studio right. One. And, and this was before there was an actual city of West right. Hollywood. It was right. just the area known as West Hollywood back then. Yeah, but I remember seeing Sylvester perform at Studio One, uh, Joan Divine. Rivers, yes, Divine, oh my God, wow. And and, and we had our own version of uh, people that would be in the club, there was always that guy dancing with that shirt off or with that with that loud color on, there, there, they had, a, you know, remember the, the uh, what? The dance floors that were just about two feet wide. Yeah, yeah, the walkways, the, the runways. Walkways, yeah. the runways. <laughs> but yeah. you know what I was thinking of the other day is that the, the most important thing, one of the most important features of going into Studio One was walking up the stairs. Yes. And first you hit those, they weren't... The back like, lot. They, no, they weren't the monitors like we have now, but they were TV sets. Yes, yeah. With pictures mm-hmm. that Rose DeCastro had taken of the weekend before. And before you'd go into Studio One, people stood around to see if their picture had been had captured. Had made it from the week before. And it was a big deal. And I remember walking through those double doors for the first yeah. time and seeing all these shirtless, marble, muscular men. It was. And thinking, I had found heaven. Yeah. I had found heaven, right? It's intimidating for people like me. Well, it's like, the reason I joined a gym. Yeah. I'm like, wait a minute, I'm a skinny little twink with puka shells on and a Hawaiian <laughs> shirt and my white pants. And I'm thinking, I, this is not, well, I need to change everything. I need to get to a gym. I need to work out. The whole idea of Tom of Finland, I mean, all of gay culture got built around the baths and the bars in the 1970s and 80s. You know, I can vouch for something here. He doesn't know this. I think I told him after a couple of years after we met and had found a, a relationship together. But I would go in, I was just talking about there's always that one person you would always see there. The one person I would always see was this guy, this oh, handsome no. man. Oh, and, wow. And, and I just thought, one of these days, I'm going to have the courage to walk up to him and talk to him. And and uh, how how did I know that a couple of years? But he was the guy I saw every week. Yeah, and find this out 40 years later. And here we are 40 years later, and we're still Best standard. of friends. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Was it your first gay bar? you guys when you walked into or is there a gay bar before Studio One? I actually the first one I walked into was uh, 
in the Odyssey. Oh, oh no, okay. no, I take that back. It was called The Other Side, which was across the street from Paradise Ballroom that ended up becoming The Probe. Oh, my gosh. The, the Other Side was a, they called it a chicken bar. It was 18 and over. <laughs> and uh, it was the same uh, group that ended up owning the Sugar Shack out in North Hollywood. I actually ended up working for both of them. As a, that is so as amazing. A, uh, we saw, uh, it was a juice bar. You know, I, I guess we couldn't have this conversation without paying tribute to everybody we lost. Because all those original bartenders at Studio One, yeah. there's just a handful left, right? I mean, all the guys that I met that would, you know, twirl the night fantastic with me, most of them died in the 80s That's and so early true. 90s. Yeah, yeah. It's really hard to kind of put my head around it sometimes. Like, I feel like it didn't really happen. It seems like a distant memory, but it did happen. And that's right that's actually the part that I'm I'm most excited about about this event. Yeah, talk about the event, March thirtieth. March thirtieth. So, so what we really want to do more than anything is honor these people. Uh, we spent so many hours, so many days and nights in this in this venue, and and so many of our friends are gone now, and and. The developer is going to, they're going to tear it down. They're going to uh, put part of the, the uh, venue back together. Uh, and so it'll, it will kind of still be there. And there's supposed to be a club and, there's, and a showroom, yes. which is all good stuff. And hopefully photographs and tributes to this period of gay history time. But yeah. we want to document that. Yeah. We, we, we want it. We want future generations to to know what went on there and how important this venue was, and so uh, that is the what instigated this event. We're going to remember what we did at the back lot, and we want to remember our experiences at Studio One. So it's going to be March thirtieth. What's the time? It's at Studio no, One. The doors open at seven thirty for everybody to come in. Okay. During the day, um, and we'll, we'll talk with Mark, Mark Saltarelli, our, our, our director of uh, the documentary, is here with us today. But uh, during the day, we're going to do interview tapings for, of celebrities that were in and out of the building uh, before we open. So we'll have it open during the day on the 30th in the afternoon. And then in the evening, 7.30, the doors will open for the back lot. And about between 9 and 10, the doors will open for Studio One. We'll do a show as a tribute to all those people who graced the backlot stages many of his past performers have come back out of retirement some are still working great people like sam harris mm. who's, who's you know did his very first show at the backlot and he's going to be joining us then uh we'll talk about the other part of the evening <laughs> next time we well, get, when we, we get, get mark back. on the air yeah, yeah when we get mark on yeah the air. we're gonna have mark on the air with us right after the commercial break well we are talking to gary steinberg and lloyd coleman from the glory days of studio one and after the commercial break mark sartorelli is going to join us and we're going to talk a little bit more about the tribute to studio one coming up on march 30th so thank you all for tuning in to sidebar with john duran here on channel q Welcome, everybody. We're talking to Gary Steinberg, Lloyd Coleman, and Mark Saltarelli about the upcoming tribute to Studio One. And Mark has now joined us in studio. Mark, you did a recent project on a night with Andy Warhol. Now you're doing something on Studio One. Why, why this topic? Why this topic? I don't know. It's just my life led me to these uh, these topics, maybe because I'm gay. That might be one reason. Um, yeah, sure, I just, but uh, you're a lot younger than, let's say, <laughs> Gary and Lloyd over here. <laughs> I look that way. <laughs> no, I, I have memories of Studio One. Oh, Absolutely. you do? Oh, yeah, yeah. you are preserving well. I, I thought you were my Jason's age, you know. Oh, well, thank yeah. you. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I was, I was there in the 80s. I arrived probably around 1983, and... Um, 
have many many fond memories. Yeah. And you know the, what the purpose of the movie is. I feel um, you know it's legendary in our minds, people who remember it. But it needs to be preserved and communicated uh, what it was and and how it changed uh, our community and society in general. And the movie goes well beyond just the. Uh, you know the stories of sexual adventures it goes into the aids crisis that kind of started and kicked in and reagan's ignoring of the aids crisis uh the alleged racism also uh gay racism can you believe it and right. not allowing women in so all of those themes are going to be kind of woven together along with uh historical preservation kind of as a wraparound that's really amazing because of course i you know i went to studio one as you all did uh, before there was hiv and aids and yeah. it was a very and i i have been clean and sober now 20 two years but back then I was not clean and sober at Studio One <laughs> and all I remember is there was a fish tank in the men's restroom that I swore I thought it was a urinal until I realized people were not urinating where I was urinating it was really do you remember thought, that fish tank I thought it was a water fountain okay yeah I know I know <laughs> I got it I realized it later to my shock and horror that I was too drunk to realize what I was doing uh, anyway those were those were some glory times who are the performers at March 30th who do you guys have coming to perform March 30th okay I'll try well it's, it's try and name some of them right here for you uh Incredible people that are coming back uh, to the back lot. One of my favorite groups, the Perines. Hmm. It's a drag a show, right? No, the no. Perines were like a B-52s. They, oh. th- this group is still wandering in through time with Gene Perine, Francine, and Darlene Perine. Oh, right. and, I remember uh, them. We, we found them. Anyway, the Perines, Sam Harris, Frida, Frida Payne, Payne, Mary Wilson. Frida Band of Gold, she'll be in the show. Oh, wow. Uh, Mary Wilson? Mary Wilson. Mary Wilson of the Supremes. The, the original Supremes. Wow. wow. I, I just there. today got confirmation from Tony Award winner Levi Christ. A very good friend of Uncle John. Levi Christ is a very good friend i'm so happy he's going to be there a That's lot great. of people don't know just how important the backlot was to the whole world yeah star search used to come in every monday night and find people to cont- be a contestant on star search and many of the star search winners like sam harris uh, uh cat adams nita whitaker mm-hmm. uh, they're going to be in the show as well yeah so these are people that were whose talent is beyond amazing uh it still is they're still working they're doing records theater tony awards you know you name it uh but this is where they got their start one of my most courageous moments in life was walking up that staircase into the back lot for the first time i circled that building for an hour before i got the courage to park (laughs) and go up that staircase and when i went up that staircase and walked through those doors one of the first people i saw was paul lind and i had seen paul lind on bewitched and he was an actual movie star and i'm like there's a movie star and he's gay. Now, who who didn't realize Paul Lynn was gay? Except me. Uh, right? when, when I saw Richard Deacon in... in Richard Deacon in, in, from the Mary Tyler Moore Show. The Mary Tyler Moore Show. I, I thought, this is odd. Charles Wouldn't Nelson Riley, I would see there on occasion. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah. One he night at the back lot, Luther Vandross got up and performed. Wow. And Joan Rivers would uh, pay, pay tribute. Rose, Rosie Roseanne, O'Donnell. Rose, Rosie O'Donnell, Roseanne Barr. I mean, it's a place where, you know, Hollywood intersected with gay, primarily gay men. Right. You know, and, and that's part of, I think, the bad side of the history is that there were often different policies for women. Right. Women had to have three IDs, no open-toed shoes, 
right? That was well, you know, it's alleged. So we're going yeah. to find out. We're going to interview as many people, you know, celebrities and regular people who went there, and really find out the I truth. Used to take my girlfriends stories. there. My girlfriends would walk in with me. We yeah. never had a problem. I, I, had, I had a female roommate, uh, and we and she took. She was the first person to take me there. So mm. it was a little bit different in my experience. But she did tell me a, a few things and stories that she had heard. We didn't experience it, but we had heard the stories. So I also want to let you know something about another person that's very important to me and that's coming, a singer from Houston. His name is Ricky Como, mm. uh, Jimmy Vukovic, who's coming from Houston. We've got people flying in from all over the country that performed here, but now they've got careers in, uh, uh, I mean, Ricky was the head of the L.A. Opera for a while, but uh, wow. some really astonishing vocalists coming back to do this tribute. Well, you know, we're brocasting now in New York, Boston, Miami, Chicago, Houston, and San oh, really? Francisco at this moment. So oh, any awesome. of you that are listening <laughs> in those places, come to West Hollywood, March yeah. 30th, for the final tribute to Studio One. Did you know that... Uh, tickets are going to be free i did not know that um the, the developers and they deserve a huge shout out for this is that they are putting this tribute on at, at a great expense and they're putting this tribute on it's it, you know we in in the showbiz world they're putting on shows we're always thinking about getting the audience there in the show but the important thing is here you anybody that wants to come pay tribute his friends and we should talk about the well allegedly the mayor of west hollywood told the developer that if he wanted this to happen allegedly. he would have to put on this well, tribute so that that yeah we're yeah. going to get to that but yeah. thank you john yeah uh, no of course my god this was such an important period of my history and ours all of ours but but look what a very important let's yeah. we should talk about the uh the, the tribute tribute the uh facebook page yes. group yes you just did. Okay, There's a did. Facebook page. There's <laughs> something that we want, we uh, that we need everybody's help with, because we're going to be remembering our friends. If you if you used to dance at Studio One, and your friends no longer with us, send us their photos. Oh, that'd be send awesome. Send us their names. We they will be there with us. We oh. want their names. We want their photos. We. We're going to design the space with our friends. Oh, and we'd also love to interview them for the film be, as well. Yeah. Oh, that'd we'd be love, nice, yeah. too. Yes. Their photos are going to be the Klieg so. lights of the evening. Oh, wow. Around, you know, we, we wanted to send up uh, candles into the air, but we can't do it for the city issues and aviation issues. So we're going to put their faces in the air. Studio One Celebration, which is a Facebook group page, please join that page you and tickets, you'll be able yeah. to upload photos and names and also find out about attending the event. You know, I told the developer, Jason Alulian, that he was going to have to let the spirits be released. And he laughed at me. I said, you don't understand. There are spirits and ghosts there of gay men. This was the happiest place on earth for them. The 70s and 80s at Studio One was the happiest place. It's also and you have to let them go. It's the place we also went for information when the plague hit. Yes. And where it was yeah. disseminated and how we got real information, not fake news of the day about it. And there was yeah. just so much misinformation when it first happened. Yeah. And uh, the scariest time of all of our lives is probably like going to war in another country for a lot of our vets. No, I think that's true. I mean, yeah. West Hollywood, 9 0 4 6 6 9 mm -hmm. and 4 8 over a 15-year yeah. period lost 10,000 people. 
That's like a bomb. It was a funeral a, a day at yeah, one point. Yeah, a funeral yeah. a day. And of were, course, Liz Taylor was our first advocate. She was. She was amazing. You want to tell a story about Reagan? Yeah. Or? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so she was well. Actually, we worked with her on her very first AIDS benefit. People think it was in Los Angeles. It wasn't. The one that she officially did was in Scottsdale, Arizona. She wanted to take it over there, but we raised money. And we sold Arabian horses. That's and amazing. We did it to try and convince Ronald and Nancy that they had to get involved. Wow, that's really amazing. We are almost out of time, you guys, but thank you for coming on. Thank you for inviting everybody. The community, you're all invited March 30th to, to Studio One Celebration. Yeah. Excited. I'll be there. You'll be there. We'll Mark be there. will be there. Jason, I may even drag you as a straight ally. We may even take you along. Be part of this history. Be there to be part of this history and yeah. film it with us. Awesome. Yeah. Thank you, guys. And hopefully you'll come back when we do more about this after sure. the March 30th event. Thank you for tuning in to Sidebar with John Duran here on Channel Q. Welcome back, everybody. Wow, what a... What a great show. I mean, I really enjoyed today's show. Uh, some really incredible guests. Steve Meister, of course, political legal guru about current events in D.C. And then the guys from the Pop Luck Club, uh, John Ireland and Sam, uh, talking about uh, parenting for gay men. But then, of course, taking me all the way back to 1978 and the days, the glory days of Studio One before there was a, an HIV epidemic in the early days of LGBT history. And, uh, you know, I, I got to tell you, I, it, uh, it, it did, uh, I, I guess this was a, one of those soul-stirring shows that happens uh, sometimes because it really took me back to a time and a place that seems to be uh, untouchable, unreachable. Um, and, and these guys that were just here are touchstones for me to a, a time and a place in, in history, in LGBT history, that was so critical for what needed to come next. And, and you know, I think that uh, when I was that 19-year-old kid with a fake ID coming out of the Roxy and the Whiskey A Go-Go on the Sunset Strip and rolling down San Vicente Avenue to find the gay bars of Santa Monica Boulevard as a teenager and... Uh, trying to figure out where I fit in the world, knowing that I didn't seem to fit in anywhere else, not in Catholic school, not in my traditional community where I was raised. I felt like a a foreign agent within my own family and and not really feeling that I was able to conform and do the things that I thought were expected of me, you know, dating girls and and thinking about getting married and having kids and and knowing that uh, any of that would be false and not real and trying to figure out where to plant my feet and how to exist. And uh, Santa Monica Boulevard and Studio One were the place where I planted my feet uh, in the 1970s along with so many others, thousands of us who came together out of uh, both small towns and big cities trying to find sanctuary, trying to find what would become the early uh, gay ghettos, for lack of a better term, uh, the Castro or the village in New York or the Hillcrest in San Diego or West Hollywood here in Los Angeles and, and finding those original friends that, you know, one moment would be strangers or a glance on the dance floor or a makeout session in the hallway or somebody that's 
you know, we, you'd get a phone number, and back then there were no cell phones, and there was no social media, and there was no internet, and you actually had to, like, call people on the phone and hope to get them or their answering machine or their pager in order to try to find each other again. You had to work so hard to find community. But those uh, gay and lesbian bars of the 1970s became organizing forums, places where we met, places where we would gather. And, and out of the just the ability to be with one another, to celebrate finding one another, to dance until dawn, after our eateries, you know, making all the mistakes that young people make, drinking too much, smoking too much, drugging too much, going home with the wrong people, all those mistakes that uh, yours truly and everybody else made. But in the midst of all those missteps and clumsiness, we created a community of people that would then be confronted within a few years with the largest pandemic in the history of humankind. And it was LGBT people that took the lead on that pandemic because the historical democratic institutions would not in this country or any other country. And it was our people that were dying. It was those guys that were dancing at Studio One and Studio 54 and the Midnight Sun and all the other clubs that we would inhabit that uh, were falling ill. And we were the ones that stepped into the vacuum and created not only a community, but a culture uh, around uh, those early days. So I know we're in a whole new time. Trust me, I'm learning all about where we are now with the Me Too movement and, and new boundaries and, and new settings. And, you know, and I'm clumsily uh, figuring it all out along with a lot of other people in the LGBT community that came out in a very different age, in a very different era with a different set of values and learning how to reboot and reconstruct with the new dynamics. But I got to tell you, whether you're my age, 50 or over, or whether you're Jason's age, my producer here, 30 or under, I can tell you that there was a time in LGBT history where the music was sharp, the rhythms were hypnotic, the alcohol was flowing, the disco lights were swirling around the room, and uh, nobody was distracted by an iPhone in your hand. Nobody was looking at anything in your hand. Instead, it was all about eye contact and cruising and meeting people and striking up a conversation. And I go into clubs today, like the Abbey, and I see just about everybody down using their fingers and thumbs on their phones. Well, there was a time when nobody had a phone in their hand, and instead you were required to reach out and strike up a conversation and meet somebody who might become a five-minute encounter or a 50-year relationship. And that's where we are now, the guys who just left, Gary and Lloyd, I've known for 40 years. And I look at them and I see the sparkle in their eyes and in their gray hair and in the wrinkles and the crow's feet around their eyes and their temples, and I think... Wow, guys, we, we really were forged in fire, and we have come out on the other side. So, March 30th, I hope you'll be there to pay tribute, not only to Studio One, but to the generations of women and men who created that early LGBT culture that would become necessary as a foundation on which to build marriage equality and pop luck clubs later in our collective future. 
And if you have photographs and memories from that period of time, go on the Studio One Celebration website, donate copies of your photographs so that your friends, my friends, our friends, will live on in history and the legacy that we all created together in creating an LGBT culture here in the U.S. of A. I want to thank you for tuning in to Sidebar with John Duran, and I look forward to seeing and speaking to you all next Friday here on the new Channel Q.